0: progress. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a daily power parsha. This is where This is where we have a lot of fun and we study Torah at the same time. That is that is the plan. That's how we roll right over here. So, today is Friday, July 15th, and as such, we're going to study reading 6 and 7 and conclude the Torah portion. It's a wild end to this Torah portion, to a very wild Torah portion altogether. Let's jump right in. Where is my? Oh, I have Providence Canyon State Park. No, it's not what I'm looking for. Parsha right over here. Reading number six. So, quickly recap, we have two blessings. Two blessings. Two episodes of curses turned to blessings from the mouth of Balaam, the evil prophet who was hired to curse the Jewish people, God forbid. And the the, the king is getting very frustrated. The king who's, who hired him, who's going to pay him, is getting very frustrated with these blessings. And Balaam says, what are you going to do? I can only say what God wants me to. Let's jump in to the next reading. Reading 6, Numbers chapter 23, verse 27. Balak said to Balaam, Come now, I will take you to a different place. Perhaps it will please God, and you will curse them for me from there. Let's try a third time. Let's go to a different place, a different overlook, and maybe you'll have different luck in cursing the Jewish people from there. So Balak took Balam to the peak of Pa'ar. That will be significant, as we'll see in Rashi. Overlooking the wastelands. Balam said to Balak, build me seven altars here. And prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. Again, the same dealio. Balak did as Balam told him and offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. So he did not go in search of omens as he had done time and time again, but turned his face toward the desert. He didn't even try to conjure up a curse. And then God tells him, no, you're going to say what I want you to say and go back to Balak and tell him this. That whole dialogue piece, Gets cut out here because Balaam saw right from the get-go it's going to be another blessing. he didn't search for omens, he didn't try strategy he didn't, he didn't uh, you know he, he, he didn't bother. he just went faced the desert and launched into the blessing as you'll see in a moment. Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel dwelling according to its tribes. This is very important. He saw Israel dwelling according to his tribes. Can you imagine the scene? Imagine you're on top of a mountain and you're looking at this vast, flat landscape and you see a mishkan. You see a mishkan in the center and maybe you see like smoke from the altar, like smoke going up and the miracle It was a single pillar of smoke from the altar. You see a single pillar going up to the sky and you see the beautiful... You see the beautiful um, wood and the tapestry and the other, the copper and the various items and various colors of the Mishkan. The tapestries had all these different colors, purple, blue, right? Imagine that scene, the, the colors. And imagine the encampment, everything organized to the north, to the east, to the south, to the west, all of the encampments of the Jewish people. Imagine you're looking out over all of that and everything is organized, tense, and it's like, it's beautiful. It's like a grid. He saw this. He took up his parable. He waxed poetic and he said the following The word of Balaam, the son of Ba'ar, and the word of a man, of the man with an open eye. Talking about himself as a man who could see things. The word of the one who hears God's sayings, who sees the vision of the Almighty fallen, fallen, Experience prophecy while falling on the ground, yet with open eyes. And here he launches into that was all his intro, his preamble. Here's what he here's the blessing. How goodly are your tents, O Jacob. He's looking at the tents. How goodly are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. As we'll see, the simple re- the simple understanding as Rashi says is that he saw the tents. And he saw how they were not, how one didn't face the other. They were staggered. The openings of the tents were staggered. Tent, 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 tent. They look like bricks staggered. So that people wouldn't see into each other's tents. Privacy. Modesty. How goodly are your tents of Jacob dwelling places of Israel? They extend like streams, like gardens by the river, like aloes which the Lord planted, like cedars by the water. Well, all of this, of course, has rich meaning. Water will flow from his wells and his seed shall have abundant water. His king shall be raised over Agag, that's Amalek, and his kingship exalted. God, who has brought them out of Egypt with the strength of his loftiness, shall, he shall consume the nations which are his adversaries, bear their bones and dip his arrows into their blood. He crouches and lies like a lion. And like a lioness, who will dare rouse him? Those who bless you shall be blessed, and those who curse you shall be cursed. And that's the end, that's the end of round three of curses turned blessings. Balak's anger flared against Balaam, and he clapped his hands, clapped from a place of anger. Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now hurry back to your place, go home. I said I would honor you greatly, but the Lord has deprived you of honor. I promised you everything, but look what you did. You ended up blessing my enemies. Wonderful. Balaam said to Balak, but I even told the messengers you sent me. From the beginning, from day one, I said the same thing saying, if Balak gives me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot transgress the word of the Lord to do either good or evil on my own. Only what the Lord speaks can I speak. And that's how he ends. Now, it's not over yet. But that's how the third, the third curse attempt ends. Strike three, you are out. Let's go through Rashi's. Pretty straightforward. Um, obviously very poetic and a lot of commentary on this, but pretty straightforward. Uh, let's continue. Yeah, he took him up to the peak of Paar. Why there? Why that overlook? So, I said that Rash will explain here. Balak was a great soothsayer, Balak the king. We said this yesterday also was a great soothsayer, and he foresaw that they were destined to be smitten through the Paar, through Paar, but he did not know in what way. He said, Perhaps the curse will take effect on them from there. It is much the same with all stargazers, they see things but they do not know what they are seeing. When I've taught Jewish astrology or Kabbalistic astrology, I, I always make sure to say this line. You know, astrologers, real astrologers, not the not fake ones that are just making money and just babamizes, but real, like legitimate astrologers who could really see. Even when they see, they don't know exactly what they're seeing. They see something. They might see, ooh, there's some negative association with pa'ar and the Jewish people. What, how, when, you know, the details, those are fuzzy. Those are fuzzy. Stargazers, astrologers, fuzzy on the details. In general terms, they could see. So Balak saw that in general terms, Pa'ar was a place that would not be good for the Jewish people. So he thought, oh, let's go up there, and Balaam will curse them from there. Well, that didn't work out. Something else bad happened in Pa'ar, um, but that's a different thing. What happened to Par was that the Jews worshipped the Baal Par. If you recall, Wednesday night we spoke about this. That the the idol connected, the Baal idol connected with the Par. The Jews worshipped that, and uh, bad things happened. But it wasn't through the curse of Balaam. Let's continue. Balaam saw that it pleased. I told this to you outside I no longer he said I no longer have to test the Holy One blessed be he for he will not want to curse them (laughs) He's not even gonna try the other two times the first two times he said well Maybe I can curse them if I go alone in solitude Maybe I can you know catch God in a moment and and get a curse through At this the third time he's already like it's not gonna happen. Let's just let's just lean into the blessings So he did not go as he had done time and time again as he had done twice the first two times in search of omens to divine that perhaps God will chance to meet him as he wished. Again, the first two times he thought maybe he can catch God at a moment where, you know, he can curse. He said, whether he wishes to curse them or not, I will mention their sins so that on the mention of their sins the curse can take effect. That happened the first two times. This time, not going to happen. He rather turned his face toward the desert. Um, he directed his face toward the desert where the Israelites had made the golden calf. Where he directed his face toward the golden calf, which the Israelites had made in the desert. Either way, I, it seems like he still was trying to catch him in something, but he knew it wasn't gonna work. Balaam raised his eyes. He sought to no, he's still trying. He's still he's I see what's going on. He's not trying to get God on board necessarily. He's trying to catch some other, some other train somehow with an Ayin Hara, a negative an evil eye or something. He sought to cast an evil eye upon them. So here you have his three attributes: Oh, yeah, an evil eye, a haughty spirit, and greed—three deadly sins. Three deadly sins in Judaism. Um, evil eye, yeah. In this case, he raised his eyes. Eye and her haughty spirit. He was arrogant. He thought he could. He thought he could, um, you know, bypass God. And greed. He did it for the money. Okay, Pirkei Avod says, these are the three, yeah, 519, Ethics of Our Father says that these are the three negative attributes of Balaam. Dwelling according to his tribes, he saw each tribe dwelling by itself, not intermingling with the other tribes. And he saw that their openings, sorry, that the openings of their tents did not face each other, so that they should not peer into each other's tents. He saw the modesty, as I mentioned before. And the Spirit of God rested upon him and entered his mind not to curse them. Ooh, this is gross. He called. He spoke about himself as the son of Baar, and he uh, also referred to himself as the one with an open eye. Rashi. His eye had been gouged out, and its socket appeared open. Oh, well, that's gross. That's gross. That also um, gives a new meaning to the idea of like third eye, right? Like third eye. Remember there was a band in the '90s. Who remembers this one? Third Eye Blind. <laughs> Classic. Classic 90s band. Anyway, no relation to uh, to Balaam. So Balaam has his, his eye is gouged out, his socket appeared open. That's kind of gross. Um, a rabbi said, second. Because he said the number of the seed of a rabbi said because he said the number of the seed of Israel implying that the Holy One Blessed be He sits and counts the seed that issues from the Israelite sexual unions waiting for the drop from who, from which a righteous man will be born he thought the one who is holy and whose ministers are are holy should direct his attention to these matter, to matters such as these does God really get involved in procreation and in in, in 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 conception etc on account of this Balaam's eye was blinded okay. Some say that the phrase means of the open eye, meaning of clear sight. Yeah, I mean, that's what I said. As uncle renders as for saying with an open eye, rather with open eyes, This teaches us that he was blind in one eye. Either way, I, I think, I mean, he's calling this a madrashic understanding. I guess the simple understanding is that he had um, an eye missing. Okay. But the deeper explanation, or the madrashic, uh, deeper, the madrashic explanation is that he had an open eye, meaning he had a prophetic vision. He could see beyond beyond the immediate fallen yet with open eyes. The plain meaning is is understood by the Targum that God appeared to him only at night while he was lying down. The Midrashic explanation, yes, I gave you that before, is that when he appeared to him, when God appeared to him, he had no strength to stand on his feet, so he fell on his face. That's what I mentioned before, that he was always on the ground when God appeared to him. For since he was uncircumcised, it was a disgrace to appear before him while he was standing upright in his presence. So he appeared to him in a fallen state. How goodly are your tents, for he saw that the entrances were not facing each other, as mentioned above. Your dwelling places, your encampments. Your dwelling places, even when they are desolate, for they are held as a pledge, mashkin for you, and their desolate state atones for your souls. As it says, the Lord has spent his fury. How did he spend it? He has kindled a fire in Zion. Interesting. In other words, even your, your dwelling places, even when they're desolate, they're being held for you. Even when we're exiled, there's still a promise of a future. So that's what he's, he's talking about. Even when things will be rough, there's still a better, a, a hope for the future. They extend like streams. What does that mean? They extend and are drawn out for a distance. Meaning the Jewish encampment was like streams, like very big. It's very hard to picture in our minds what two million people in camp would look like. How big of an area that is. It's a huge area. Huge area. Extend like streams. A rabbi said from this wicked man's blessings we can determine how he intended to curse them when he decided to turn his face toward the desert. In other words, from the blessings you can understand what the intent was to curse. For when the omnipresent reversed the words of his mouth, he blessed them in a way corresponding to the curses he intended to say, as stated in Chelek, which is uh, a very famous... Talmudic chapter in Sanhedrin. What, what was the intended curse? I don't know. Rashi dot, dot, dot it. He's like, dot, dot, dot. I don't... We'd have to look that up. Um, but the point is that the blessings, if you reverse the blessings, you can understand what he meant with, with the curses. Like, what he intended. Like aloes, aromatic plants. Okay? Which the Lord planted in the Garden of Eden. Another interpretation, like the ferment, which is stretched out like a tent as it says, and he spread them out like a tent to dwell in. Okay? Which the Lord planted, we find the expression planting in relation to tents. As it says in the will pitch, Vaita has palatial tents. So planting and pitching tents, similar grammatical phrases. So thus this is seemingly still referring to the encampment. Balaam is very impressed as to how the Jews are encamped. Water will flow from his wells. From his wells, the meaning is, as the Targum says, namely, the king appointed from his sons shall be great. Sorry, anointed. The king anointed, not appointed. The king anointed from his sons shall be great. And a seed shall have abundant water. This expression denotes prosperity. Like seed which flourishes when planted close to water. His king shall be raised over Agag. Their first king Saul will capture Agag, king of Amalek. And his kingship exalted, the kingship of Jacob will come greater and greater. For following Saul will come David and Solomon. So here we have, if we want to kind of break down so far, just again, take the bigger view because I like to get a, get a picture of what's going on here. So Balaam is launching into his, you know, his monologue, his poetic uh, stuff, which is a blessing. He sees the encampment. The first thing is he praises the encampment. Wow, how modest, how beautiful is this encampment? How wide, How vast it is, how blessed it is, and how modest it is. Prosperity, it will be filled with prosperity. They will have strong kings like Saul, David, and Solomon. Let's continue. God who brought them out of Egypt. So who caused them all this greatness? God who brought them out of Egypt. With his power, and he will consume. God will consume the nations who are who are his adversaries. Right? That's what it says. God shall consume the nations which are his adversaries. Bear their bones. Bear the bones of these adversaries, um, and dip his arrows into their blood. Let's see. Rashi, Uncles interprets as referring to the half of, of the adversaries. Those who shall take half. Uh huh. So, the word chitzav yimchatz could either mean arrows or having, ha, having h a l v i n g like halving, cutting into half. So either it means I know we translate here as arrows, but it could also mean half. So Rashi says here it means that they divided among themselves their adversaries' land. They split it up, not into half necessarily, but they divide, they divvied it up. It also could mean, in its literal sense, arrows. The arrows of the Holy One will be dipped into the blood of the adversaries. He will dip and stain the arrows with blood. Okay. Either way, it all follows the arc. It all follows the narrative arc. How numerous and how beautiful, and how modest, and how blessed, and how strong is the Jewish people. They will have mighty kings, Saul, David, Solomon. God will cause their adversaries to fall, either be divided, or literally bloodshed, assuming enemies will try to wage war with the Jewish people. He crouches like a lion. What does that mean? The Targum renders they will settle in their land with might and power, like a lion with strength. Okay, that, and that's the end. So basically, this reading, this blessing, I would say the theme is about the strength of the Jewish people. I think yesterday's theme, if I recall correctly, the second set of blessings was about the connection with God, got the relationship, the loving relationship with God. This one is about the strength of the people. They're modest, they're strong, they're vast, they're powerful, kings, like a lion. That's kind of the, the Haggadah, the, uh, the, the, the definition of this blessing. All right, then Balak got angry, he clapped. He struck one hand against the other. And Balak answers, Balam says, what are you, uh, Balak says, what are you doing? Balak answers, Look, no matter how much money you give me, I cannot transgress the word of the Lord. Here it does not say, my God, as it says the first time, because he realized that he was loathsome to the Holy One, (laughs) blessed be he, and had been banished by him. He was on the outs with God. He doesn't say, initially, we're not going to go back, but apparently in the first round, he said, I cannot transgress the word of the Lord, my God. He added the word, my God, right here. He doesn't say, my God, because he realized that God is not so happy with him, not so keen on him right now. So he's like, I can't transgress the word of God. Not my God. Okay, on to reading seven. Unbelievable. And now he says to the king, I am going to my people. In other words, I'll go home now. Because this didn't work. But before I go, come I will advise you, dot, 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 what this people will do to your people at the end of days. This is a very, very, vague um, statement. And you see the dot, 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 that's based on Rashi in the commentaries that explain that uh, Balaam said two things here. Number one, I will advise you what to do about the Jewish people. And furthermore, I will give a prophecy about the end of days. So we're about to get into the only clear prophecy or fairly clear prophecy of the Messianic era in the actual five books of Moses themselves. Most of the prophecies about Mashiach are found in the books of Scripture, the books of the uh, the prophets, right? Isaiah, etc. at all. Here is the, 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 the clearest five books of Moses reference to Mashiach and that prophecy. But again, there's two elements here as the dots represent. Number one, I will advise you I'm going to give you advice what to do about the Jewish people. And number two, I'll let you know what what the destiny is going to be. What did he advise him? Rashi. I'm going to my people. From now, I am like the rest of my people. For God has departed from him. For God had departed from him. Come, I will advise you, dot, 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 what action you should take against the Jewish people. What is that advice? The God of these people, the God of the Jews, hates immorality thus entice them to sin with your women as is stated in the Talmud chapter khelek that's what i read once for those that were wednesday night at the class that's the excerpt that i read about the jews like they like um, clothing and they like um, entice them with clothing and then wine and then women and then idolatry it's a whole it's a whole setup the proof that Balaam offered this counsel Caused them to stumble through immorality. How do we know that Balaam is the one who gave this advice? Is that it said they were the ones who were involved with the children of Israel on Balaam's advice. It says clearly later on in Torah that this was based on Balaam's advice. Balaam, although he was disgraced at this point because he couldn't curse the people, Balaam could give advice and said, You know what? God doesn't like immorality. He does does not like idolatry. Why don't you mix those two and bring down the Jewish people? on a a human level, bring them down. You might not be able to curse them supernaturally, but bring in the women, bring in the idols, and make that happen. The second point he said, I will tell you what these people will do to your people at the end of days. This is an elliptical verse, not to be confused with an elliptical machine. Is that what they call elliptical machines? Whatever. It's an elliptical verse, um, meaning I will advise you how to make them stumble, number one. And I will also tell you how they will punish Moab at the end of days. Okay. Let's keep on going. I'm going to toggle Rashi off and let's go. He took up his parable and said, now understand what's going on here. This is the fourth, the fourth monologue of Balaam. The first three times he was on some level trying to curse. This time, and all previous three attempts were solicited by the king. This is unsolicited. He's just, he's just speaking and really prophesying. These are, this is all a prophecy. The word of Balaam, son of Ba'ar, the word of a man with an open eye. He introduces himself again same way. The word of the one who hears God's sayings and perceives the thoughts of the Most High. It's a bit arrogant. Who sees the vision of the Almighty fallen, yet with open eyes. Again, same idea. I see it. He's referring to Mashiach. I see it, but not now. I behold it, but not soon. A star has gone forth from Jacob and a staff will arise from Israel, which will crush the princes of Moab and uproot all the sons of Seth. Before I go any further, I need to tell you two ways to understand these verses. Two of the most classic ways of understanding these verses. One way is to understand everything here as a future messianic prophecy. I see it but not now, behold it but not soon refers to Mashiach. A star has gone forth, a staff will arise, crushed a pr- Mashiach, 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 Messianic era. There's another way to understand it, and that is that, that the prophecy is alternating between a prophecy about the future kingdom of David or the future Jewish monarchy and Mashiach. So it's about the future monarchy of Israel and the future messianic monarchy, as it were. Which is why he says a double expression: "I see it, but not now, David. I behold it, but not soon, Mashiach." A star has gone forth from Jacob, David. A staff will arise from Israel, Mashiach. You guys, with me on this? There's two ways of understanding it. Either it's just rep- repetitive, but it's and it's all talking about Mashiach, or in both, just, just to, hold on one second, let me just check in with you guys. In both cases, he's talking about the future. The question is, is he talking about a near future and a distant future, or is it all distant future? Near future would be, I mean, near a few hundred years. Either he's talking about David a few hundred years away, and then Mashiach a few thousand years away, or he's talking about only Mashiach a few thousand years away. That's the classic debate Amongst the uh, the commentaries, Rashi, Rambam, they have different ways of understanding it. Some of the, some of the great commentaries. Edom shall be possessed, and Sayer shall become the possession of his enemies, and Israel shall triumph. A ruler shall come out of Jacob and destroy the remnant of the city. That's that's it. Not it, but that's one chunk of prophecy and blessing. It, it, it works either way. I mean, either way. Either he's, he's prophesying about the Jewish monarchy and Mashiach, or just Mashiach. Either way, it's a prophecy about good times and about how the Jewish people will be so strong that they'll defeat their enemies. Either way, it's a prophecy for the future. And that kind of closes out that piece. But he kept on going because he was on an overlook and looking out. Again, I just picture Lookout Mountain in Tennessee where you could see like five states. How, how, many, how many states can you see on Lookout Mountain in, in Chattanooga? Is it five, seven states? You can see a bunch of different states, whatever. So he's now, now Balaam, the prophet is now looking out and seeing different areas. When he saw Amalek, he took up his parable and said Amalek was the first of the nations. In other words, he was the first to start up with the Jewish people. His fate shall be everlasting destruction. He's going to get wiped out. When he saw the Canite, the the Cani, one of the nations of in Canaan, right? He took up his parable and said, "How firm is your dwelling place? And your nest is set in a cliff. For if Cain is laid waste, how far will Assyria take you captive?" Again, a little bit, a little bit poetic. Um, but is referring to ultimately these nations that are very strong, ultimately falling. He took up his parable and said, Alas, who can survive these things from God? Ships will come from the Kittites and afflict Assyria Syria and afflict those on the other side, but he too will perish forever. In other words, ultimately, these nations are strong and they seem strong, but they, but they will not stand in opposition and they will not, eventually, they will not ultimately destroy God forbid, the Jewish people, they will ultimately find their own end. At this point, after the fourth prophecy blessing about Mashiach, and after waxing poetic and prophetic about Amalek and the Caini, it's one of the seven nations of the Canaanites, although it's, it's one of those nations, after he did that, and he spoke about Assyria and other ones, at that point, Balaam arose, went and returned home, And Balak went on his way. That is legitimately the end of the story of Balaam. Well, okay, that's at least this end of the story. He goes home, he's disgraced, and he's a failure. And he's not getting paid either, by the way. You think he's getting paid? I mean, he wants to get paid, he he sues to get paid, but he's not actually actually, uh, deserving of payment at this point because he didn't actually curse the Jewish people. I guess it depends on the contract. (laughs) But he did give advice. If you recall, we read Rashi. I will advise you. He did give advice. Get them involved in immorality and idolatry. And God doesn't like that. So the very next verse, this is what happens. Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. Israel settled in Shittim. And the people began to commit harlotry with the daughters of the Moabites. Remember, um, Moab, Balak was the king of the Moabites. So Balaam said to the king, Okay, send your daughters out. Send the, send the women of the land out and entice the Jewish people to sin, immorality, and idolatry. So they did. That's what happened. They invited the people, they, what's going on here? They, the Moabite daughters, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate. And prostrated themselves to their gods. It goes without saying, I'm sure it goes without saying, that this is what, this is another instance in which the Jewish men got in, got in trouble. Not one instance in the Torah do we find the Jewish women getting into trouble, i.e., doing something that God does not like. Not once. Again and again and again, it's it's the men. In this case, certainly as well, this is what's going on. Um. Israel became attached to the Baal Pa'ar. Remember, they went to the Pa'ar Overlook. They attached to the Baal Pa'ar. That's the idol. And the anger of the Lord flared against Israel. Again, the two sins were the harlotry, the immorality that was done, and the sacrificing to their gods, the idolatry. Does she want to be on camera again? Come. Oh, wow. Look at you. Come. Chaya, come. come. Come back and say hi. Hold on. We'll pause for a moment. Let right him the of the drama. Hello. Come young lady. I no? Want to come yeah. to say hi? Nap time. Nap, t- nap time. You guys walking for nap time. Okay. All right. Back inside. Back inside. It's the nap before the, it's the walk before the nap. Um, so uh, the anger of the Lord flared against Israel. Again, there's no worse combination than immorality and idolatry to get God's goat. I mean, the only other thing would be murder. Those are the three capital crimes in Judaism, right? The three capital sins are idolatry, immorality, and and murder. They had two out of three. That's that's pretty bad, right? Right now, um, and that and again, just just to triple down on this, that exa- that's exactly what Balaam said to Balak. I will advise you. Turns out he wasn't so much an evil prophet and a cursor as much as he was a consultant. It turns out he became a consultant. And by the way, I'm not saying that in jest. I'm saying that legitimately because according to the commentaries, the Talmud says later on um, in in, in the book of Numbers, toward the end, and we've alluded to this, the Torah tells us clearly that Balaam was killed in, in, in the war against Midian. And the question is, why was he there? Why was he in that area? And the Talmud says, you know why he was there? He was trying to collect payment for his efforts. Even though he couldn't curse the people, but he gave advice and the advice ultimately panned out because, as we'll see here, God gets very upset, and a play breaks out, and it it takes down the Jewish people at least a little bit. So Balaam eventually said, "Hey, that plan worked out." So he came back looking for money. He's like, "I couldn't curse them, but I gave you advice. Pay me not as a as a as a prophet, but as a consultant." And he was there, and he got killed in, in the in the war when the Jews waged war to take revenge against this. What's about to happen right now? All right, I feel like I'm I'm way ahead of the story, but I hope I hope this is making sense. Back inside, God got angry. The Lord said to Moses, "Take all the leaders of the people, and hang them. Be- Whoa, holy cow! And hang them before the Lord, facing the sun, and then the flaring anger of the Lord will be removed from Israel. Hang them before the Lord. Wow, what does that mean? Let's continue. Moses said to the judges of Israel." Each of you shall kill the men who became attached to the Baal Pa'ar. And they started doing that. Capital punishment for those that sin with idolatry and, and immorality. I mean, these were capital crimes. These were capital crimes. And then the next drama unfolds. And this is what we did Wednesday night. Because a lot of these people who had become attached to the Baal Pa'ar and were, die- were being killed were from the tribe of Shimon. The tribe of Shimon came to their leader, Zimri, and they said, what's going on? You've got to stop this. So then an Israelite man came and brought a Midianite, the Midianite woman to his brethren. This was Zimri, the leader of Shimon, and Cosby, a Midianite princess. He brought her before the eyes of Moses and before the eyes of the entire congregation, the children of Israel, while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. This was such a dramatic moment and such a helpless moment. And now you had this leader bringing this Midianite woman. And as the Talmud says, Talmud fills in the, the gaps of the story. The Zimri says to Moses, Is she permitted to me? Is this okay or forbidden? And if you say forbidden, then who let you marry your wife, Zipporah, who was a Midianite woman? She, this woman with me right now is Midianite, is a Midian, is a Midianite, and your wife is a Midianite. Puts him on the spot. Mano, oh mano, This is a very, uh, very tense moment, and everyone's crying, and no one knows, this, no one knows what to say or do. But this guy is, meanwhile, engaged, literally, literally engaged. I, th- I mean, I think they went to inside a tent, but they engaged in an act of immorality right then, at that moment, right in public. Again, not literally in public view, but like in public. Pinchas. Remember that name. It's the name of next week's Torah portion. Pinchas, the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron the Kohen. Aaron was someone who loved everybody. But even someone who loves at some point has to take action decisively. Pinchas, the son of Elazar, son of Aaron the Kohen, saw this, arose from the congregation and took a spear in his hand. He went after the Israelite man into the chamber, to the tent, and drove it through both of them. The Israelite man And the woman, through her stomach, as they were obviously together in an act of intimacy, he um, speared them both. And the plague ceased from the children of Israel. Those that died in the plague numbered 24,000. 24,000 men were killed because they were engaged in this activity and the the situation. Actually, I'm sorry, I think there's more than 24,000. Let's look at Rashi. I recall that there was those that died in a plague and also those that were executed by the uh, by the judges. Remember Moses said to the judges, Each of you shall kill the men who became attached to the Balpar? I think there was there were there were both scenarios. I don't know that we're gonna be able to do all the Rashis because you know, it's Friday Arab Shabbos and there's a lot to there's a lot to read over here. I feel like I don't want to read the Rashis on the prophecy of Mashiach, that we've done in other classes about about Mashiach and that you know, you can, you, you can look up. I I, re, I feel like I want to do the Rashi's on this last piece where Balaam's advice gets taken. And, uh, oh, bye, Ray. We'll see you have a good Shabbos. Um, where Balaam's advice gets taken and the Jews are led into sin. By the way, that's not to, to let anyone off the hook. You know, when we say that the Midianites, the Moabites and the Midianites, they enticed the, Jew, the Jewish men into sin. That's not to shift the blame, by the way. That's not... Everyone that has to take responsibility. So you can't blame, you know, the enticer. Don't be the enticee, right? Stand up and, and don't, don't get sucked into it. All right, it is what it is. In Shittim, the Jews settled in Shittim. That's the name of the place. To commit harlotry with the Darza Moab, Rashi clarifies as a result of Balaam's advice. That was the advice that was alluded to before, as stated in Chelek in Sanhedrin. Chelek is just the name of the chapter of the Talmud in, in Sanhedrin. Um, they prostrated themselves to their gods when when his urge, his meaning the guy's urge, overcame him. And he said to her, Submit to me. This means, of course, a physical intimate urge. She took out an image of Pa'ar from her bosom and said to him, Bow down before this. Pa'ar was named, yeah... Because that's how they I'm not gonna read all these words, that they relieve themselves before the the idol. That that was the manner of, of its that, that was the manner of its worship. Essentially Rashi says both, bow down and of course relieve themselves. So which one was it? I don't know, it sounds like both. It sounds like both. God's anger flared and he sent a plague upon them. So uh, God said to Moses, "Take all the leaders to judge those who worship, and hang them the idol worshippers." Oh, it literally means hang. Okay, all right, there you go, hang them. This refers to death by hanging, legit, as we find with the sons of Saul. And we shall hang them for the Lord, and their hanging is speci- and their hanging is specifically mentioned. Idolatry is punishable by stoning, and all those who are stoned are also hanged. Wow. Facing the sun means for all to see. The sun identified the sinners for the cloud folded back from the area above him and the sun shone on him. Remember the cloud? They were protected by clouds. I guess the cloud peeled back. The sun was shining spotlight on those that were executed here for their sins. Wow. Each one of the Israelite judges executed two. And there were 88,000 Israelite judges. 88,000 times 2. It's 176,000. 176,000 Jewish men executed for their activities. Out of 600,000. It's a staggering number. You guys with me on this? One hundred seventy-six thousand out of six hundred thousand men. All right, I think we got to look more into that because that—that sounds like way. I don't. I'm not going to say too many, but that sounds like a just a just a mammoth number. All right, we're going to move on. Then an Israelite man came. The tribe of Shimon gathered around Zimri, who was their prince. He said to them, "We have been sentenced to death. You sit there, and remain silent." He took a Midianite woman who was Cosby, the daughter of Tzor. That's next week it it gives all the names in the parsha. Before the eyes of Moses, they said to him, Moses, is this one forbidden or permitted? If you say forbidden, who permitted for you, the daughter of Jethro? I stayed in the Tamur. Pinchas saw, he saw the deed, reminded himself of the law. The law is that in such a situation, public desecration, cohabitation, right? You're allowed to be zealous and, and take out the perpetrators. He said to Moses, I've learned from you of someone who with an Aramian heathen woman. In this context, zealots have a right to strike him dead. So Moses said, okay, let the one who reads the letter be the agent to carry it out. If you remember it, so then you do it. Immediately, Pinchas took a spear in his hand. He went after the Israelite man into his chamber, into the tent that they were in, that the two were in. And he pierced them both through her stomach. Uh, he aimed... Okay. He aimed for the male organ of Zimri and the female organs and her female organs and everyone saw that he had not killed them for nothing. Which I guess means that they they were still they were still uh, embraced. Many miracles happened to him as, state, as related there in the Talmud Sanhedrin 82b. Be interesting to look up that, that piece of Talmud and maybe I will. Um, okay. Sanhedrin 82b. Six miracles were performed for Pinchas when he killed Zimri. One is that Zimri should have separated himself from Cosby and he did not separate himself. Had he done so, it would have been prohibited for Pinchas to kill him. In other words, if they would have separated, then he couldn't have killed them. One is that Zimri should have spoken and alerted the members of a tribe to come to his assistance and he did not speak. One is that Pinchas directed the spear precisely to the male genitals of Zimri and to the female genitals of Kazbi so that the reason that he killed them would be evident. One is that Zimri and Kazbi did not fall from the spear. One is that an angel came and raised the lintel of that chamber so that Pinchas could emerge holding them aloft on the spear. And one is that an angel came and caused destruction among the people distracting them from interfering with the ashes with of Pinchas. Okay, I mean we're ending on clearly a very, very bleak... Uh, space. But I just want to do the math here. The Torah portion ends by telling us that people that that the people that died in a plague were 24,000. According to my math, and those were men. Again, no women were involved in this. No Jewish women were involved in this. 176... I know the answer, but I'm just going to do the math here on my calculator. 176,000. That's 88,000 judges times two that they killed each. 176,000 plus 24,000 in the plague. You know the number, Right? That equals an even 200,000. 200,000 Jewish men died in this moment? At this this time, I mean? It's a third of the Jewish people? Third of the Jewish men? All right, if anybody wants to look that up and find out if there's another number that we're missing or if that's legitimately the case, let me know. But that sounds like an absolutely staggering figure. 200,000, a third of the men died in this moment? this episode? Clearly, the moral of the story is, don't do any of that stuff, right? Don't get involved in the negative stuff. It's also about the evils of Balaam. Here's a guy who tries, tries, tries again to curse the Jewish people. He can't. He knows he can't. He knows that God doesn't want it. And then at the end, he's like, well, you know what? If you can get them to do this, God's not going to be happy. And he's right. And it works. He can't curse them but they can be enticed into sin. And to me, this, let, let's end with this lesson. And it's not necessarily like an uplifting message, but it's kind of like a, a cautionary message. And that is, sometimes the supernatural stuff is not what's going to do it. It's not like the, the curses and like the spiritual stuff. It's about the practical stuff. It's about the, it's practically being a mensch. It's like practically taking care of you know, living our lives the way we're meant to live, and not engaging in untoward behavior, doesn't sound very spiritual, but it's very practical. And that's where the curses. Ah, Balaam tried; he failed. That that doesn't that doesn't work. But but what is the Achilles' heel? It's the practical stuff. It's the really practical stuff. I'll end with uh, with with an insight that I've shared before. That ties into our class, a little bit into our class from Wednesday night. But it also just ties into this theme as well. There's a prohibition in Torah for a Kohen Gadol, a high priest, to marry a widow. A Kohen Gadol, a high priest, cannot marry a widow. We've talked about this before. The Torah says it clearly. One of the reasons given is because we're concerned that the high priest might have his eye on a married woman. And on Yom Kippur, in the Holy of Holies, he might add a special prayer to God to take out her husband so that he can marry her. And because of that, and because of that, we tell him, even if you did that, you wouldn't be able to marry her. (laughs) Even if you were able to cause her husband's death, and now she's unmarried, she's a widow. She's available, not to you. Not to you, buddy. You still can't marry her. So therefore, don't even, don't even take him out to begin with. Don't, don't, don't even kill him to begin with. Let, let, let it be. And this is one of the commentaries that explain why the Torah forbids the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, from marrying a, a widow. Because we're concerned that maybe he would use his powers, nefariously, to take out her husband and marry her which tells us something remarkable. That we're concerned that a high priest, on Yom Kippur, in the chamber of the Holy of Holies, standing in front of the Ark with the cherubim, feeling the presence of God, acting on behalf of the people to atone for them, what's in his head? A married woman. The high priest, we're going to suspect? Yeah. You know why? Because he's a human being. I mean, because he's a man. No, because he's a human being. That's the way it is. Human beings are human. Human beings being human doesn't always look so pretty. Humans have a lot of, the holiest of the holy people might have these thoughts. And we therefore, according to one comment, have to create laws to negotiate this. We have to create laws to protect against this. You can't marry the widow, so even if you did it, it's still not going to work. You still won't be able to get what you want. That's the concern, at least according to one opinion. And now we can understand, we can appreciate what Balaam said. I can't curse them. No supernatural force can take them out. But you know what can? Human desire and temptation. That's what can, that's what can bring about the downfall. That's what can bring about it's the, it's, the, it's the moral failings of man, I say man kind of universally, it's the moral failings of the human being that, that ultimately do us in or can, God forbid, take us down. So what's the lesson? The lesson is we have to be on guard, always on guard. Always be careful to not let our guard down. Oh, we, we should never, in the language of our sages, never trust yourself. Never trust yourself. What that means is, sounds like a very disempowering message, but it's really a more empowering message. It's really, it's, it's always believe. We should always believe that we're one step away from doing something not, not kosher. Therefore, be more vigilant than not. It's a tragedy that happened this week. Hor- horrific tragedy. Chabad Rabbi in Florida it doesn't matter that he was a Chabad or a rabbi, but someone, a father in Florida he left his son, three-year-old son in the car, and the child passed away. Happened earlier this week. I happen to know him. I mean, it's been years since I've spoken to him. I know him from uh, from back in the day in Crown Heights. We crossed paths a few times. I, I can't imagine what any... what. There, there are no words to this tra- for this tragedy. Absolutely horrific tragedy. And, of course, it caused a lot of conversation in this household and I'm sure many others about the dangers of the heat and children and, and cars and lock cars and remembering your kids when you go out of the car, all of the above. One thing that that my wife emphasized in this conversation to me and to others is that if you think that you could never forget your child in a car, then that is precisely the Th- th- then you're more, even more susceptible to living your childhood. In other words, never believe that it couldn't happen to you. Because then you take your eye off. Then you take your eye off. You know, your eye off the ball. Always believe that yes, this could happen, and therefore you'll be vigilant to make sure it doesn't happen. This is the same message, the overarching message in Judaism. It's never believe that it could. Oh, I would never do that. You would never do that. There you go. There you go. If you feel like I could I, I might do this, so therefore I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure I don't, then you're on guard. Then you're proactively being on guard. Whatever it is, whatever it is, it doesn't if you if you believe that, oh I I'm 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 above that or I'm beyond that, or you it could never have. You know, let the games begin, so to speak. Then, then 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 you're just opening yourself to just immense vulnerability. And so Judaism. Is nothing, if not, honest about the human condition, human frailty, and the need to be careful. Balam took advantage of this. He took advantage of, I don't know, yeah, of human of human weakness, but also probably of the the sense that a, of a person of like, oh yeah, I'm I'm that would never happen to me, or I'm impervious to this. Okay. Next thing you know, cut to the next scene. So the moral of the story is, let's be on guard. Okay, so that's I think you got that, that moral. Circling back to the overarching picture of this week's Torah abortion, Balam can't curse you. God loves you. God loves us. God blesses us. And indeed, we should have a Shabbos of blessing. Ending on a positive note. A Shabbos of blessing, a Shabbos of goodness, and only good things and simchas, only happy occasions, and always being vigilant and on guard ourselves and our loved ones and our family members, etc. And may indeed the prophecy of Balaam that we read today about future time, I see, but not, not yet, this, uh, this star, this, this shoot, shooting forth and bringing good things. May Mashiach come speedily in our days and bring an end to all suffering and bring a time and an era where there will be only goodness and happiness and peace and prosperity and health for us and for everyone. And let us say, Amen. Thank you very much for joining me. Questions or comments before we close out? The floor is yours, and the floor is lava. Yes. Shabbat shalom. Thank you. Shabbat shalom. Uh, Sandrine, do you want to say something? No. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Sarah, anything? Final word? Uh, do the, I have one question. Yeah. Yeah, um, about the stunning and hanging. I was just wondering if. That always happens with her. It's in tandem. Always. Rashi seems to indicate that after the stoning is the hanging. Now, I I wanted to move my head. And I, that's, I believe the Talmud says that. I wanted to move my head away because I'm just thinking the stoning was brutal. And the, what are you hanging? I, I just don't want to... Like the picture of that is <clears throat> a little bit um, um rough to picture. So I don't know the logistics but I do believe that Rashi quoted, um, give me a second. Hang. This comes from Sanhedrin 45b, according to Rabbi Eliezer. Oh, one second. It might be only one opinion. Let me just do a quick fact check. Hold on. Let me circle through this. Find Eliezer. Quick Googling. Oh, okay. It's a it's a mishnah. In fact, if it's helpful, I'll share it. Mishnah: The corpses of all those who were stoned who are stoned are hung after their death. This is the statement of Rabbi Yezer. And the rabbis say only the corpse of the blasphemer who has cursed God, and the curse of the and the corpse of the idol worshiper are hung. I guess that would apply either way. Yeah. This would apply because they were idol worshippers. So I guess it would apply here as well. Um, the corpse of a man is faced, hanging the people. But the corpse of a woman, out of modesty, is hung with face in the tree. I, all right, yeah, it gets pretty dark here. But yeah, this is Sanhedrin forty-five B, is where it talks about this. Again, the logistics of which I don't know. Um, but that's that's what that is. All right, it's good to see everybody. It's great to study together. Um, another week, another Torah portion, another wonderful. Uh, experience together next week is the Torah portion of Pinchas. We're back, please God, Monday morning, uh, Monday at noon. We'll see you then. Of course, Shabbat Shalom. Sunday we'll have Kabbalah and coffee and all that good stuff. Oh wait, wait, wait. Um, hold on. Sunday is a fast day. Sunday is the seventeenth of Tammuz fast day. It's pushed off from Shabbos to Sunday. Are we having Kabbalah and coffee? Certainly not the coffee. Stay tuned. Stay tuned for more information about the Kabbalah class. I'll send that an email in the next few hours. All right, we'll see y'all. Take care, everybody. Shabbos, everyone. Shabbos, take care. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at Intown Jewish Academy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.